Good morning. This morning we are continuing our series that we began last week called Mind Your Own Busyness. So this is now part two of Mind Your Own Busyness. And before we move into the new stuff, I guess I should review a little bit of what we said uh, last week because this week, at least conceptually, I think is going to pick up right where we left off last week. So I cannot review, like I can't re-say the whole sermon from last week to you, but I will um, remind you of the two points of last week's sermon. Let's go back over the two points that we learned last week. The first point that we learned in last week's sermon was that God doesn't require us to accomplish all that we could possibly accomplish. Do you remember that? We said that when it comes to busyness, it's important to understand that God does not actually require us to be as busy as we could be or to try to achieve as much as we possibly could with the minutes and the hours that we have. And we said that we see that in the book of Exodus. In chapter 20, we looked at the Ten Commandments. In particular, we looked at the Fourth Commandment. And it says that the people were to work six days, and then it specifically said, do not work one day out of the seven. Do you remember that? So um, it seems to me, uh, maybe, maybe among other things, part of the thing that's going on here with the Sabbath commandment is God is saying, do not fill up all of your time with achievements and tasks. Like make sure it's not that every single hour and every minute and every day is filled with this stuff. There needs to be something that's set aside. Um, I think a good illustration of this would be, and, and you could be, you, I, everybody's going to relate to this. I'm pretty sure everybody in this room at some point has read a book. But if you notice, when you look at a book, you just flip to any page in the book and you notice at the, at the top, if you go to the very tippy top of the page, it doesn't, there are not words there, right? The words do not begin at the very top. Depending on the size of the book, there's like a half inch or a quarter inch of just blank space up there. Have you noticed? And then on the right side, or on the left side, if it's the left page, there's a bunch of other space. It just kind of seems like wasted space. There's nothing even printed there at all. It's just a little white space on the edge. And then down at the bottom, there's another half inch or quarter inch. It's just, I mean, you could put words there, but they're not there. It's just, there's just a space there at the bottom. Um, what is that about? Well, in fact, what is it called? What are those called? Yeah, those are called the margins. And I think there's something in us that has come to realize like the value of the margins. If somebody came along and said to you, um, hey, I came up with this great idea to save paper. What if we took like every book that was like 200 pages long and we turned it into a 170 page long book by just typing on every single square inch of every page? Like we could make all of the books a little shorter. Wouldn't that be better? And I think most of us would go, no, it's not better. Like we shouldn't actually be trying to fit 120 page, uh, 200 page books into 170 page books by taking up every single square inch of paper. Like that's not better, even though it's shorter, it's not better. Um, there's something in us that just, you know, I don't know, we just realized that. No, there's, there's value to that. Uh, better to print a few extra pages and not take up every square inch of the page. And so margins are of course helpful when it comes to books. And margin is something that matters in our lives, right? God only wanted his people, like when you look at the, in the Old Testament, he only wanted his people to be achieving with six-sevenths of their time at most. Um, so the second thing that we learned last week was the Mary and Martha story, okay? You guys remember that? Yeah, Mary, Martha, Jesus, they were all, uh, they were all in the story. There was a discussion that happened. Martha is the one in the story who had the long to-do list. Uh, Mary is the one in the story who was focusing on Jesus. She um, was being educated and trained by Jesus. And in the story, it specifically said that she was the one that made the right choice. We also said last week that it's not simply the number of things that were on Martha's to-do list that put her on the wrong side of this issue, right? It wasn't just simply, oh, she had a lot of things. That was what was wrong. The issue seems to be that she was worried and upset 
and distracted by her things and was not focused on the one who matters most. Which brings us to the second point in this series, and it was the main point of the sermon last week. Busyness can distract you from who really matters. So those are the two points that we've covered so far. Point one, God doesn't require us to accomplish all that we could possibly accomplish. Point two, busyness can distract you from who really matters. So today what I'd like to do is I would like to now add a third point to our list that we're working through. Okay, so in the series, this is the third point. In this particular sermon, this would be the first and only point. Okay, the point of today's sermon is, apart from God, busyness is useless. So God doesn't require us to accomplish all that we could possibly accomplish. Busyness can distract you from who really matters. And now today, we say, apart from God, busyness is useless. Now, I know that that sentence is true, because apart from God, everything is useless. However, the topic of this series isn't everything, right? The title of the series is not Mind Your Own Everything. So um, I'm going to focus on the uselessness of busyness in particular, busyness apart from God. And if we want to talk about the uselessness of busyness apart from God, there is no better book in the Bible to go to than the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is the best book in the Bible to turn to to make this point. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes at this time. In the first service, I think there was someone over there that groaned when I said Ecclesiastes. They went, oh, and I went, oh, you've read it before. So, so Ecclesiastes is kind of a, well, you'll see. I'm going to just, I'm going to start right at the beginning. Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse one. I'm going to read the first four verses of this book. This is found in your Old Testament. Um, here's what it says. The words of the teacher, son of David, King in Jerusalem. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a man gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So you can tell by the way that the book begins, this is not exactly like the feel-good book of the year, is it? <laughs> Ecclesiastes is kind of like a heavy, heavy book. In some ways, it's a depressing book if we cannot understand it like in light of what is revealed in the New Testament. So let's go ahead and see what it says. It starts off with the words of the teacher. So it's talking about what this book is about, right? The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Who's it referring to? Solomon. Solomon. Okay, so um, this book is attributed to Solomon. And what does Solomon say? He begins in verse two, absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility, everything is futile. Now, um, I did, I, there's a particular Hebrew word that is translated futility and futile um, in this passage. Um, that I didn't look up this week, but I remembered it when I studied it back when we went through the book of Ecclesiastes here. Some of you maybe remember, years ago, we taught verse by verse through the book of Ecclesiastes here. Um, and so when I did that, I remember there was a significant Hebrew word in this book that it's helpful to know the meaning of it in order to understand the book. And it's the Hebrew word Havel. Havel is, um, Havel is a word that apparently is difficult to translate because it can mean so many different things. And so the word is, if, if you're going to translate it literally, the word means vapor, okay? That's what havel is. It's vapor. It is like in the, um, in the wintertime when you go outside and you go, and then there's that breath that you can see for like a second or two before it dissipates. Okay, there's, that's havel. Uh, here in Florida, we get that like three or four days a year. It's fantastic. Okay, you get that moment where you can see your breath, okay, and that's good, and now it's time for the, whatever, the groundhog and spring comes, and then we're done. Um, so 
that little puff of air, right? That vapor, that it's there and then it's gone. That's the idea behind this Hebrew word. But that's if you were to translate it literally, which is not the way that Ecclesiastes is using it. It's also used figuratively to mean vanity or meaninglessness or futility or the idea that something is inconsequential or fleeting. It's there and then it's gone. And so there are different uh, Bibles that translate it different ways when they go to translate into English. There are some Bibles that say, when you get to what Solomon says here, they say, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And some that say, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And in my Bible, it's absolute futility, everything is futile. But the idea is the same. Everything is vaporous. Like the reason that Solomon said everything's a vapor is not because literally everything is a puff of air, but everything is inconsequential, it's fleeting, it's useless. That's the kind of thing he's trying to say all throughout the book. Now, this is not a series, as I said, on everything, so let's go ahead and just skip straight to the part that applies to busyness, and that would be Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 4. If you go to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 4, you'll see where he starts to talk about this topic. He says, I increased my achievements. Who's the I? Solomon, okay? So Solomon is doing what? He's increasing his achievements. Why is he increasing his achievements? Well, the, the, the section just before this said that he's trying to see what's good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. It's kind of like an experiment. Solomon's looking at this life and he's saying it's vapor. It's there and then it's gone, right? Life is short. So what do you do with it? Everybody gets a few days on this earth, right? We have these short lives that we live. Um, so what do, we, what do we do with the little bit of time we have? And so he tries stuff, and this is the part where he tries achievements. He goes, well, I know what I'll do with the little bit of time I have. I'll get a lot of stuff done. So I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs of water for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. Well, what did he do? Well, he did a lot of stuff. It looks like Solomon had a pretty big to-do list. He had a lot of tasks that he did. It doesn't say he built a house. It says he built houses. It doesn't say he planted a vineyard. It says he planted vineyards and built gardens and he built parks. And he, it looks like he planted practically a forest, right? And he had a reservoir of water in order to water the forest, right? This guy got a lot of stuff done. Now, I don't know if he literally with his own hands built all the houses and planted up and you know, did all the parks or if he was just the supervisor in charge of all these construction projects. But whatever it is, he accomplished a lot of things. Another thing you also notice as he talks, it comes up a lot of times. He says, um, I planted vineyards for myself. He says, I made gardens and parks for myself. Um, I constructed reservoirs of water for who? For myself. And so this is something you see over and over again. It appears that he didn't do these things for the glory of God. It appears that he went, well, what should I do with my life? I know what I'll do. I'll get a bunch of stuff done for me. I'll, I'll achieve a bunch of things and I'll go, look at all the stuff I did. So how did it go? Let's look, verse seven. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned many herds of cattle and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. I didn't look it up this week, but I remember back when I taught this, I think this is a word that's hard to translate from Hebrew, and they're kind of guessing as to what it might mean. Um, I guess their guess is that it had something to do with sexual partners, but apparently it's a Hebrew word that's hard to know. He had many somethings. Um, And so, in fact, he had many of a whole bunch of somethings, right? He achieved a lot of things, and the result was a lot of things that were considered like successful, uh, and I assume in that culture and in ours, right? He had servants, and he had animals, and he had wealth, and he had, you know, money. 
Verse nine, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was the reward for all my struggles. So it's interesting, he uses this word struggles here. I was happy with all this stuff, like I was trying to enjoy all of these things that I did. I took pleasure in all my struggles. What struggles is he talking about? I think, I don't know for sure, but I think that's referring to the work that he had to do to get all the stuff, right? I struggled in having to build the houses and do the things and run this and keep track of this. And the result was all this stuff that I got. And so I, and I, I tried to take pleasure in all of this stuff that I worked for. And then look how it ends. So he says, this was the reward for all my struggles. Now look at verse 11. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve. Like he said, when I, when I sat back one day and just looked at all of it and went, whoa, look at all that I've accomplished these past few years. When I just looked at all of it, I considered all that I accomplished and what I labored to achieve, I found everything to be havel, everything to be vapor. I found everything to be futile, vanity, and a pursuit of the wind, right? When I considered all that I accomplished and what I labored to achieve, I found everything to be vaporous. I found everything to be meaningless and a pursuit of the wind. It was like trying to get all the gold and the silver and all the happiness that's going to come from all of this stuff. It was like trying to catch the wind. I wasn't really satisfied. I didn't really find what I was looking for. Then in the ends with this, this last sentence in the paragraph, he says, there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Well, why? He worked so hard and had so much stuff, so much stuff that we would consider success. Why was there nothing to be gained under the sun? What was the problem? Well, he eventually gets to the problem. I'm just going to skip to verse 18. The topic comes back up again in the same chapter in verse 18. He says, I hated all my work. Why? That I labored out under the sun because, here it comes, because I must leave it to the man who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. All my stuff might be owned by a fool one day. Yet he will take over all my work that I labored at skillfully under the sun. This too is futile. This is Havel. This is, what a waste. What an emptiness. So I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I had labored at under the sun. Have you ever had one of those like sort of existential philosophical moments where you're like, oh, what is life even for? Right? So he despairs concerning all my work that I had labored out under the sun. Verse 21, what? When there is a man whose work was done with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he must give his portion to a man who has not worked for it, <laughs> this too is futile and a great wrong. For what does a man get with all his work and all his efforts that he labors out under the sun? For all his days are filled with grief and his occupation is sorrowful and even at night his mind does not rest. This too is futile. So according to the book of Ecclesiastes, what is a major weakness that we find in our to-do lists and all of the achievements that they produce? Well, according to verse 23, first of all, all the work that it takes to produce all the stuff does bring grief, right? I mean, we wouldn't, a lot of times it's stuff we call work, we call it work because it's not fun, right? So we, we work really hard and it's not, it's not a ton of fun to do it. And then what happens? He says, even at night his mind does not rest. So not only does the work bring grief, but it stresses him out at night. Can you relate to that, right? Even at night, his mind does not rest. Have you, ever ha have you ever been so busy 
that you're going and going and going, and then finally when your body stops, your mind does not, right? And so you're sitting there going, well, I've been go, go, going. It's time to stop right now. And your brain is like, no, right? And it just keeps going. You're like, no, no, I've decided to stop now. And the brain is like, we're just getting started. And you're up all night long and you can't even shut it off. You've experienced this before, haven't you? Isn't it crazy? That goes back a long way. So he's pointing out these problems with all the work we do. But honestly, I think that these problems are, there's something he mentions like almost in passing. I think the biggest reason that all of this is a problem, he said back up in verse 18 and 19, the real big idea, why is all this useless and hevel? Because of verse 18, look at it. I hated all my work that I labored out under the sun. I think this is the real reason why, because I must leave it to the man that comes after me, right? The biggest problem he has here is the achievements that he, that he accomplishes in his life, they're all temporary. You can't take them with you when you die. I must leave it to the man who comes after me, and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Death makes everything useless in the long term. Now, you may say, well, what do you mean by long term? I mean, I understand there's death, but I don't think everything's useless. I think there's a lot of good things. Well, what do you mean, Mario? This is what I mean. Okay, let me ask you the, let me ask you the question this way. Is a sandcastle significant? Like, is a sandcastle significant compared to other buildings? What's the answer? No. Why? Well, because it doesn't last long enough, right? Now, if you notice, I didn't ask, are sandcastles real? Of course they're real. Like when you go to the beach, there they are. You really see it. I didn't even ask if they're good. I'm sure there are plenty of you who say they're good. I wouldn't argue with that. Sure, they're real and good. But the question is, are they substantial? No. But here's the thing. I want you to consider this. If reality were, just imagine it, if reality were 30 minutes long, then sandcastles would be substantial because they'd be there the whole time, right? But they're not substantial because reality is so much bigger than the lifespan of a sandcastle. Now this is deep, but this is what I think Ecclesiastes is saying. Ecclesiastes is saying reality is so much bigger than you. Reality is so much bigger than you and all of your achievements. Ecclesiastes is saying if you zoom out far enough, you'll see that everything in your life is a sandcastle, right? Without God, everything is futile because reality is so much bigger than you. And I think this is easier to see the older that you are, okay? I think the older that you are, you tend to go like, oh, yeah, I am like a little tiny spot in a giant thing, right? And the younger you are, the harder it is to see. I think sometimes when you're a teenager or you're in your early 20s, you're like, no, I'm pretty sure I'm significant. I, I am. I'm kind of a big deal. And then you get older and you go, no, no I don't think I am. I was wrong. I was wrong. But it's true. The older you get, you start to realize, wow, I'm just a tiny little insignificant thing in the sea of all of humanity that has ever lived, right? This is, this is important for you to get no matter what age you are. The team that you coach right now will be someone else's team one day. It will not be yours anymore. The business that you run right now one day will either not exist or it will be run by someone else. Good News Church, if it lasts long enough, will be pastored by someone else one day, and it will be attended by a congregation of people who do not remember me. Your house that you live in right now 
will one day be lived in by someone else. May very well be lived in by someone else that you don't even know. Or it will be bulldozed down by people who don't care about what tile you picked for the shower. (laughs) Everything is going to be not yours in just a little while. Now, you might go, whoa, Mario, what happened? You used to be fun. (laughs) Oh, I'm still fun. But it's important, it's important to feel the weight of what is being said here. Because if you live for the completion of your to-do list rather than for God, that kind of futility is headed your way. Now, I want you to notice something. I've been trying to teach so far that without God, everything is a sandcastle, right? In fact, I began the sermon by saying, apart from God, busyness is useless. So it seems like what I was hinting at, that that implies that there must be some sort of good news wedged in there somewhere related to God, right? Yes. So that's the question. How does living for God change this reality that is described in the book of Ecclesiastes? How does living for God change this reality that we find described in the book of Ecclesiastes? And I think for that, the best way I know how to answer that question, we're going to have to go to the New Testament to get our answer. And for that, we're going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bible with you, please go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I think you'll see the answer to the question. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll get there slowly. We're going to start with the beginning of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. It says, Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaimed to you You received it and have taken your stand on it. So Paul is talking to a group of Christians here. You can tell they're Christians because he calls them brothers. You can also tell they're Christians because he mentions this thing called the gospel. And he's saying, this is something you already know. I've already proclaimed it to you. You guys have heard the gospel in the past. Not only have you heard it, you received it, right? You've taken your stand on it. So he's saying, you're my brothers who have already heard the gospel. You've already believed in the gospel. You're already believers in Jesus, okay? He's talking to them. And he wants to remind them of the gospel, he's, already, he's saying, I've, I've already said this to you once and you believe it, but now I'm gonna say it to you again, okay? Now look at verse two, he says, you are also saved by it. What's the it there? The gospel, right? This message of Jesus Christ, say, you are saved if you believe the message of Jesus Christ. You are saved by it, but notice, you are saved by it if. If you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe for no purpose. So apparently, coming to know Jesus and becoming a Christian, right, and being a a follower of Jesus is not something that you just, you hear the gospel message, and at some point in your life, you just uh, try really hard to believe it. There, I did it, I believed it. And then you move on with your life and live the way you always have. No, he's saying if you are to be saved by the gospel, you have to hold on to it. It's not like there's just some moment where you go, all right, I believed it. Like you have to continue to believe it all of the days of the rest of your life. So then he says, verse 3, For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received. And now he's referring. He said, I want to re-say the gospel to you, and now he's saying it. He said, this is the thing that that I told you was most important. All right, here it is. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That is the gospel. 
Like he said, I want to remind you of the gospel, and then he said that. That's the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. If somebody ever came up to you and said, what is the gospel? You could quote this verse to them and say, I'll tell you what the gospel is. It is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and you would have told them the gospel. Now, it seems to me most of the time you're going to tell someone the gospel, you will probably want to use more words than just that. But, you, but, but that is like the bare minimum. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Now, if you're actually trying to explain to someone how to have a relationship with God, you're probably going to want to say more words because you're going to have to explain, like, okay, so Christ died for our sins. Who is Christ? What does it mean that he died for, for our sins? What are sins? Okay, what's a sin? Um, so he was buried and raised. What does it mean to be raised? Okay, according to the scriptures. What are the scriptures? There are probably a whole bunch of other words you would need to include if you were going to share the gospel with someone. But if you want to just see the gospel in a nutshell, just summarize very briefly, there it is. So he declares it to these people. Um, Jesus died for our sins. Okay, that's part of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins in order to save us. If you remember, the verses just before this said, you are saved by it, right? So Jesus died for our sins to save us. To save us from what? To save us from the consequences of our sins. And one of the consequences of our sins is death. Jesus died to save us from the consequences of our sins, including death, as opposed to eternal life, okay? So eternal life is not what we deserve because that's not the consequences of our sin. Death is what we deserve, Jesus saves us from the penalty of our sins so that rather experiencing like an eternal life apart from him, we can have eternal life with him. So in light of that, let me go ahead and just skip to the end of this chapter. So I'm still in 1 Corinthians 15, but I'm going to skip to the part that talks about eternal life. I'm just going to skip to Jesus saves us from our, the consequences of our sins, saves us from death and into eternal life. This is how he describes it. Same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 54. When this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. So let me pause here. What is he talking about? He's talking about something that's going to happen in the future. It hasn't happened yet. He's saying one day the saying will take place, but not now. Well, what is the thing that's going to happen? This corruptible, there's going to be a day when corruptible things are transformed into being incorruptible, right? When this mortal is clothed with immortality, I think he's talking about us. He's talking about our bodies, right? One day when I am transformed from being a mortal person to being an immortal person, right? He is describing eternity, is he not? One day when I live with God forever and I'm made into a forever person, then the saying that is written will take place. Here's the saying. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now, the sting of death is sin, right? Death comes because of sin. And the power of sin is the law, right? There are sins because there's right and wrong. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I said all that to now, I just wanted to get you to this verse. I want you to see verse 58. Therefore, so this is right after, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, and keep in mind the word therefore means... In light of everything I just said, right? So here's the gospel. Jesus died for our sins, rose again, saved us. That this, uh, this mortal becomes immortal, right? Death is defeated. When he talks about all the, because there is this eternal salvation for those who are in Christ Jesus, therefore, like in light of all that, therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's, what? The Lord's work, 
knowing that your, what's the word? Labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because of the gospel, because of eternal salvation, the work that you do, the struggles that you have, and the stuff that you achieve is not in vain. I picked this passage because of the word vain, because it's conceptually related to Havel, the thing that we talked about from the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not the same word because the New Testament was written in Greek and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. So they're two different, they're from two different languages. So this is not the word Havel because it was written in a different language that doesn't have that word in it. Um, but conceptually, it's the same thing. It's a word that means that. It's a word that means empty and vain, right? So he's saying, in light of the gospel, the stuff that you do it's not Havel, it's not empty, it's not meaningless, it's not vanity. If we are saved by Christ, then your to-do list becomes God's to-do list for you, like doing whatever it is he wants you to do with your life. And you do whatever you do for him, like the stuff that you do, you do it, you, you do labor in the Lord. So, it's, so my, my to-do list is now God's to-do list, whatever he wants me to do, and I complete that list for him, not for myself. And in light of that, your accomplishments are not in vain. In other words, if there is no God, nothing you do will matter 1,000 years from now. However, if the God of the Bible is real, and Jesus really is your Lord, and he saves you from your sins, the stuff you do now will matter 1,000 years from now. Because you'll be around 1,000 years from now. Do you get that? So the question is, well then how do I make sure that I'm doing the Lord's work? Or how can I make sure that my labor is in the Lord? Isn't that an important question? Yes. So I hope to address that question next week in Mind Your Own Busyness, part three. If the Lord wills, we will. I think we've covered a lot today. Will you come back next week? I hope so. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would be our teacher this morning. I already prayed it earlier when I was just over there by my seat. But I pray that these words today would make a difference, not because sound waves came out of my mouth and went into somebody's ear, but that you would be the one that teaches us in our hearts and changes our lives. So I just ask that from you. We do thank you for these passages, that for the parts of the Bible that are heavy and the parts of the Bible that are so joyful. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that there's anybody here who does not know you, that they would come to know you, that they would come into, like, like they would smack into reality, which I'm sure they have before, but sometimes we have to smack into reality around the same time that we, th that we are thinking about the gospel. And so I pray that if there's anybody here that needs that, that they, would, that they would kind of smack into reality and then understand the gospel and come to know you and that their lives would not be Havel. And I pray for those of us who already know you, I just I pray that this truth, you would stir up in us, that we go, oh wow, yeah, the things that don't matter, they're, they're never gonna matter, and the things that matter, they're gonna matter forever. And so that affects how I live. And we praise you because it didn't have to be that way. 
So we thank you for the gospel, Jesus. We thank you for eternal life. We thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. We praise you and pray that you would help us, especially this week and next week when we're listening to the sermon and even during this closing song as we sing the lyrics. I pray that you would give us discernment so that we would know how it is that we are to live for you. I pray that you would reveal that to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.